This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to this special live recording of Pass the Mic in Chicago. And for everyone who's listening to this podcast, can someone, can everybody here in this room just give it up and make some noise so they can hear you? Let them know that you're here. We are here to celebrate the launch of Jamar's new book, The Color of Compromise, and I look forward to just us jumping into the book and hearing from you, Jamar, hearing your heart, and um, and just gleaning from you, and even being able to have questions be posed to you uh, tonight, and so so that we, uh, as a team, and you can engage with the audience that's here as well. Uh, for those of you who uh, may have missed it, you could submit questions uh, via Twitter, at the witness BCC. All right. And so there is still time for you to do that. Also, if you have not picked up your copy of the color of compromise, please don't miss the opportunity to pick up a copy. And, uh, I'm not too, I'm not too ashamed to say if you know somebody who needs a copy of this book, like, have you ever listened to a message and say, you know what? This message is nourishing my soul, but I know somebody else that needs to hear this, all right, please take the opportunity and and uh, give someone this uh, book as well, and um, it would definitely be an investment worth making. So, um, Jamar, before we take the time to get into the book, we want to take the opportunity to hear from you and hear your heart and vision as far as what is the witness. Mm. Um, uh, because it's been mentioned a few times tonight. And so for people who are not familiar with the witness and, and what we're about, um, what would you have to, to offer as far as that goes? The tagline says a lot, a black Christian collective. And so one of the things that we want to emphasize is that we are legion. It's not just me. It's not just Tyler. It's this group on the team, as well as so, so, so many others. And what we're attempting to do with the witness is to address the core concerns of black Christians from a biblical perspective and really more broadly, black people in general. Um, what that looks like is we are engaging issues of race, faith, politics, culture, you name it, through a biblical lens. One of the things that we're trying very intentionally to do is do this out from under the white gaze. (laughs) So what that means is a lot of our content early on and a lot of content from black Christians in certain spaces is sort of filtered or uh, managed even if inadvertently by the expectations of white Christians or other white people. And so what we want to do is say, listen, we love our brothers and sisters across the racial and ethnic spectrum, but there is a distinctiveness to the black experience that needs expression, uh, needs expression through Christianity and through a Christian lens. And we're trying to do that in a way that's speaking to black people and not about black people. And that's always been the challenge. Uh, so, you know, it's taken on a lot of different forms. 
it started with a Facebook page in in our living room, and uh, it, it grew from there to uh, a a website where we could post blogs, which is important because as a historian, I like a paper trail. And so 50, 100 years from now, should the Lord tarry, I want people to be able to go back and say, what were black Christians in the 21st century thinking? And the Witness website gives you an entire log of black thought, which is diverse. We don't all agree on everything, as you saw with the Black Panther discussion, right? Um, and you have literally hundreds of articles there that serve as resources for the church now, but also a record of black thought in the future. And then we, we started the podcast uh, more than three years ago now, and that gave us a, a, a new way of expressing, expressing our thought, a more dynamic way. We're adding more podcasts. Each of you have one now, and what we want to emphasize is it's not just one or two people. There's incredibly intelligent, faithful black Christians out there with really good things to say. So the New York Times and CNN and Washington Post, y'all talking to the wrong people. You need to be talking to these folks here to get a sense of, you know, what it's like to be black and Christian in America, how we interact with other religious groups, other racial groups, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a little bit about what we do. Absolutely. Yeah, I am so thankful for The Witness because it fills a much needed void that I think was present, particularly whenever you start talking about activism, whenever you start talking about current events and things that are that are going on publicly that we need a witness for, that we need a black Christian witness for. So I am so thankful. So now we're going to get into some questions about the book. So the first question via Twitter is, why did you write this book? <laughs> well, I talked a little bit about that. Um, it's Two reasons, though, if we can, you know, if I want to delineate. One is theological conviction. So literally from Genesis to Revelation, you have God painting this picture of a wonderfully diverse, multi-hued, multilingual congregation. Uh, so Genesis 1, 26 through 28 talks about the image of God, all people being made in God's image, which therefore gives them intrinsic dignity and worth. So we honor all life, no matter what skin color you come in, right? No matter what racial or ethnic background or cultural background you come in. So that gives us the foundation. But, but then in Revelation, he pulls back the curtain of eternity, and God says in Re- Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9, that there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that we're going to be gathered around the throne worshiping the Lamb. And I'm like, he says, God says, let's pray for thy kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So a lot of people understand that to mean we should be pursuing unity in the midst of diversity. And so that's part of the impetus of the book is that I believe this stuff is in the Bible, actually. Um, the other impetus, impetus comes from uh, personal experience. So much of my life has been spent as a racial minority in predominantly white spaces, whether that's school or church or wherever. And my hope in my heart is that any congregation you walk into, you would feel like you're with family. And that has historically not been the case, <laughs> um, uh, especially when you're talking about majority white churches. And so I want us to take a good, hard look at the ways that Christians in America have reinforced exclusion and marginalization. And I want them to be burdened like I am, both from personal experience and learning from history, to do something now. That's the key. So I, uh, part of it is, 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 uh, a righteous discontent, I hope, 
Uh, I spend a lot of my time going to different conferences, churches, venues, talking about race and justice and unity and diversity. And it's very frustrating to go there, to have everybody say, amen, thank you, brother, so glad, we agree, and then walk away and nothing happens. Nothing changes. And so I'm like, well, one little part of this puzzle is that you don't know how bad it is. And so you don't respond with the urgency that the problem requires. So I'm hoping this is helping us to get that urgency. One of the things that you do in the book, and, and I think I think it's masterful, by the way, but I'm biased, all right? I know you, I love you, and I appreciate <laughs> I'm, you I'm, I'm, I'm okay so much, that. man. But um, you, ha- you speak in academic circles, and you also engage in the pulpits of local churches. Who lets me do this stuff? You know, this very morning. brave and wise people, of course, yeah. right? <laughs> but how important is a proper understanding and reckoning of American history to the local church and Christian discipleship? Bruh. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, History has been transformative for me. So I was not always into academic history. That came about uh, really in the mid-2000s around when Ferguson went down and all the uprisings. And you had a national conversation where a lot of people were disagreeing, but that same conversation was happening among Christians and people were debating and arguing back and forth. And I was just trying to make sense of the events along with a lot of other people. And I found that historians had the most helpful things to say. Historians were able to provide context for why you have a community like Ferguson, which is predominantly African-American, but you have a police force, which is predominantly white. They were able to provide a history. One, One of the things that historians say is everything has a history. So they were able to, to, to trace the relationship between law enforcement and predominantly black communities all the way back to uh, uh, the days of emancipation right after the Civil War. And, and so they were talking about redlining, restrictive covenants, racial steering, all of these things that I had just never really known about or understood, and I wanted to know more. Because the reality is we can't understand the present if we don't understand the past. We can't know where we're going unless we know where we came from. And, and Christians, of all people, should really recognize this, right? Because when we open the Bible, we want to know, okay, who's the author? Who was the audience? What year was it written? What's the context? What's the redemptive historical context? We want to know what the theologian said. What's the Greek? What's the Hebrew? What's the Aramaic? Right? Why? We need to know context, context so we can rightly divide the word of truth. If we want to rightly divide the times that we're in, then we need to know the context that shaped it. And so history has been pivotal for me. The other thing is history is simply narrative. Woe to historians and history teachers who make history boring because it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, and, and it's just the story of humanity. And I love history because it is, it is, it is concrete. It is not theoretical, right? So we need it for theology to your question because I spent Took me five years to get through seminary, y'all. I spent a long time in seminary. 107 credit hours and requirement was 106, okay? Um, I got that degree. And when you learn theology, it can stay up here and it can stay heady and intellectual and theoretical and philosophical. But if it is not rooted in actual human events, then you are learning principles without practice. And that's a problem because now you're equipping a generation and generation and generation of church leaders to go out and serve. And they don't know anything about where they are. 
And I'm just talking about U.S. history, y'all. We are we have such am, uh, amnesia when it comes to simple things like the civil rights movement. Here's how most people remember the civil rights movement. One day, a little old lady was tired, and so she sat down on the bus. Then Martin Luther King gave a speech, and then racism was over. That's it. Seriously, it's your eighth grade textbook, your high school class that you don't remember anyway, and, and that's about it. And so I could go on and on and on, but you want your, your, your theology has to have a context so you understand how God's eternal truth is applied in specific situations. And history really is the anchor point of the color of compromise. And I know that in your work as a historian and as a scholar, you have had to engage with those primary sources and some secondary sources, but primary sources. And there was a story that you told in the book that really had me shook. You were telling the story about Absalom Jones and Richard Allen in the church. And I won't go into and spoil the story for those of you who had the book, but basically the story involved them being physically removed from the altar of a church. And that was something that I found to be so harrowing. So how did you take care of yourself Mm. During reading those primary sources and reading about the oppression of black bodies or that story that you read about the, uh, about the little girls, the, the, the four yeah. little girls, yeah. how do you take care of yourself? Um, so you bring up a great point. Uh, one of the things about learning America's racial history in general, because you can read stories of oppression as they relate to women, as they relate to the poor, as they relate to Native Americans and Asians and all kinds of people. Um, but it's particularly egregious when it comes to people of African descent because of race-based chattel slavery. And so there are incredibly tragic, heartbreaking, heart-rending stories throughout the narrative of American history. And I'll be honest with you, this is, um, even in my academic history pursuits, it's soul work. It is spiritual work, and it is exhausting. And so part of writing this book is Misery Loves Company. I'm like, I'm not going to read all this and be burdened by it and nobody else get it, right? Like, you got to feel this burden, too, uh, with me. Um, it's hard. It's really hard sometimes. If you take an honest look at, at, at American history, it's ugly, it's brutal, and it's always violent. At the end of the day, white supremacy can only maintain power through violence, ultimately. And we got to understand that. And so one of the things this book does, I hope, is cause you to enter into black pain, enter into black suffering, because if you can't empathize with black people, then you can't be allies to black people. And so um, taking care of myself really came from the collective, from y'all. We, uh, uh, our, our friend, Dr. Christina Edmondson calls it trauma laughter. We laugh so we don't cry. And that's actually a therapeutic, um, type of thing. Uh, gathering together with like-minded people. So the witness, even though it's, it's sort of a, a virtual platform online, just to know that there are other like-minded folks out there. Um, everybody asked me, did you see, you know, 12 years a slave or, you know, whatever, whatever. I'm like, no. <laughs> I can't handle all that. Like, I I deal with this all day, every day. If I watch a movie, it's going to be stupid and it's going to be funny. And and that's how I get through, you know. Entertainment got to make me laugh. Um, so, So those are the kinds of things that got me through. And then also the examples of the saints who came before us. One of my favorite heroes of the black freedom movement is Fannie Lou Hamer. 
This woman uh, was born in 1917, and she had everything against her, humanly speaking. She was poor, she was black, and she was a woman. She was born into sharecropping. She had an elementary school education, and she had to quit so she could pull cotton full-time. Uh, she heard in a church sanctuary about voting rights and immediately became an activist. Also immediately lost her job, got kicked off the plantation where she had been sharecropping, uh, but she gained a national audience for her civil rights activism, particularly for voting rights, and she did it because of her faith. Uh, in almost every public address she gives, she brings in scripture, she talks about the costliness of being a Christian, how you better stand up for this stuff. So if Fannie Lou Hamer could do it, and she had all this against her, and she died poor, y'all, um, this was not lucrative to fight for justice. Um, if she did it, I cannot avoid that responsibility. There's an urgency to this. There's, there's, there's a, um, there's a sense in which no matter how hard it is, we are compelled because none of us are free until we're all free. Yes, amen. That's so true. And I'm sure it's something that, uh, there are those of us in this room can relate to. Cause even in talking about like avoiding watching movies like 12 years a slave, man, I had to prepare myself for that. Like yeah. I did not, I didn't go to the theaters to watch it. I, I read the book first. Then I thought, okay. Now I'm ready to, and it was, visual, yeah. mm-hmm. and you know, and there are certain movies that honestly, I just still, I still haven't seen. And yep. so that I could definitely re- relate no to that. In that game. Yeah. One of the things that, um, you do in the book in laying out a historical survey is you list key moments where the church had opportunities to rise up and confront racism, to do the right thing, mm-hmm. to do the righteous thing, the just thing. Uh, not just in the eyes of man, but in the eyes of God. And so, uh, sadly, history is littered with missed opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to know, what are some of those missed opportunities that stood out to you the most as you were working on this project? One thing we have to realize is that race is a social construction. It's not rooted in biology beyond the amount of melanin that we have. It's certainly not rooted in ontology, the way God created us, that there would be a hierarchy based on skin color. That had to be socially constructed, which means um, that there was a time when it was still being built, when the cement was wet, so to speak, and that would be in the colonial era. So one of the things that stood out to me as a turning point was in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, a group of white Anglican men, passed a law that said baptism would not confer freedom on a person of African descent, Native American, or mixed race. Right there, you have the confluence of race, religion, and politics. What struck, what stuck out to me is this is 1667. So it's a hundred years before the Declaration of Independence, a hundred years before the Constitution. This issue of race and religion and also politics, when you talk about politics, you're talking about power, that predates the political entity known as the United States, which means there was never a point in our country's history where this wasn't an issue. And that's how far back the problem goes. So that was a big turning point. Another big turning point was the Civil War. If there was ever an opportunity to make real the promises of democracy for all God's people, it was right after the nation waged its bloodiest war over slavery. Don't let anybody tell you different. Heritage, not hate. Well, what was your heritage? It was owning people who look like us. Amen. Okay, it's just what it is. Um, so 
right after the Civil War, you have this uh, brief moment where black people stood in the sunlight of freedom. We call that Reconstruction from about 1865 to 1877. And all throughout that, there was resistance. But during that time, you had incredible black political participation. You had, a, a, a briefly for a time, a black governor in Louisiana. You had uh, uh, state and U.S. senators. Um, at, in, at one point, South Carolina, was the, the, the state congress was majority black. And you had folks going out and starting businesses and starting schools and starting hospitals. And it showed for all the world to see that all black people needed was a chance. That chance was ripped away. It was stopped short after just a few years. And the period after Reconstruction, not a lot of people know this, it's called redemption. And redemption is a Bible word. That's a Christian word, and it's a positive word. It's a salvific word. It means God bought us back from the wages of sin and death. And so it's supposed to be celebratory, but in this case, redemption meant the political, cultural, and economic economic hegemony of white supremacy, taking back the South, redeeming the South. And this is where you get the idea of the lost cause and heritage, not hate, and the Confederate monuments and and symbolism going up. So that was another turning point. And then, of course, the Civil Rights Movement was a massive turning point, could have been, uh, for black enfranchisement. Mind you, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed. In the late 19th century, there was also a Civil Rights Act that was passed that did essentially the same thing, but they had to pass another law because they weren't enforcing it. And so the same thing is happening over and over again. 1965, the Voting Rights Act is passed, but we are dealing right now in the 21st century with voter suppression based largely along economic, racial, and ethnic lines. And so we've missed opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, but what I'm trying to say in the book is that if race can be made, in some senses it can be unmade, that things don't have to be this way. And it's up to our generation right now to be part of the change. That's amazing. That is, that is great. So a lot of this book, I feel like, is laying bare the, the sin that has happened, the sin that, that the majority culture church has been complicit in. So my question to you is, as you were writing this book, and obviously there, there was a bit of writing it for the white gaze or re- realizing that you were going to be under the white gaze as you were, as you were writing this book, how would you suggest that people of color use this this book? Like, do we do we sli- do we you know, slide it to people? Like, you know, like like, it's like like how do you suggest that we use this book? Because obviously it's informational and yes. it's instructional for our majority culture friends. But how do we use this? I love that you asked that because number one, being black don't mean you're qualified to talk about race. Amen. It just doesn't. Uh, there are a lot of black folk who don't know their own history. And so number one, I hope this equips people of any race or ethnicity to understand the history of race as it pertains to the American church, black folk included. Um, don't go popping off at the mouth just because something happened to you one time, right? Like, like that's part of your experience, but there's a lot more to it. We need to train for this. We need to equip ourselves for this. So I want black folk to equip themselves and not assume that just because their skin is a certain color, they have uh, more knowledge than, than other folk. Um, yes, I think we should slide it to people. Slide it to your pastors. Slide it to your seminary professor. Um, spread this information as far as it can go. Uh, but I also think we, we, we talked about on a podcast that we recorded today that'll be released soon, so I won't give it all away, but we talked about being not racist, 
not non-racist, but anti-racist. And black people need to be anti-racist too. Now there's balance there and nuance, right? Because some of it is simply surviving is resistance. Uh, perseverance is protest for racial and ethnic minorities in this country. But there's also a sense in which we need to follow after the Fannie Lou Hamers and the, the Ella Bakers and the Ida B. Wells and the Frederick Douglasses, who in addition to persevering and surviving at great cost to themselves, pushed for collective advancement. And so black people need to get involved in the struggle. Um, King had very sharp words for other black pastors and churches who refused to get involved in the civil rights movement. We like to think it was all black churches. It wasn't. It was a minority of black churches. Many other black clergy and black Christians actually criticized King because he was moving too fast or he's too much of an agitator. And now we look back on it 50 years and like, okay, he was doing what needed to be done. 50 years from now, how will they look back on you? Many of us say, well, if I was alive in the 60s, the 70s, or 50s, I would have participated in the civil rights movement. Well, there's a civil rights movement going on right now. And so if you aren't participating now, don't say you would have participated back then. Uh, so we got to get involved, y'all. Absolutely. Jamar, without giving too much away, because I want everybody else to read this book, right? One of the things that you do is you actually lay out a plan of action, which I think is it's excellent. It's really effective. Mm. It's extremely practical. Yeah. So again, without giving too much away, could sure, you just sure, give sure. a synopsis of some of those action points that even leaving here tonight, there's there's, uh, you know, a direction forward, so to speak, uh, for us for us to walk by. Like I said, this is a book um, about the past, but it's really about the present and the future of the church. So I thought it was really important to have at least a chapter on practical solutions. Now, one thing you'll notice about the, the, the items proposed in that chapter, and it's the last chapter, is that they focus on systemic and institutional issues. So um, the evangelical church in America doesn't have a problem with the individual Right. They can conceptualize that. Right. And, and that's a problem, because if you think of racism only in individual interpersonal terms, one person not liking someone else, then the solution is, well, let's be friends. You know, let's go grab a cup of coffee. Let's have lunch. We can even worship together in the same church. But that's not actually getting at the causes that perpetuate racial inequality. And so the solutions I'm talking about pertain to education, uh, health care. Uh, just the way society's insured. So I'm going to just be honest and say, we need to take down these Confederate monuments. Listen, listen, listen. I live in a, I, I go to school in a state which still has the Beauregard battle flag, known as the Confederate battle emblem, on the flag. On the flag. Every time I see that, which is frequently, I know that that flag is an assertion of who's in charge. And telling me, Negro, what your place is. Even if people talk about heritage, not hate, if you look at the history of when that flag uh, started being used in the 1890s, Mississippi led the way in disenfranchising black people from the vote. Other southern states looked at the Mississippi's constitution and took that on. The flag goes up right as that is happening. Uh, many Confederate statues and monuments. I was just in Greenwood, Mississippi for a book talk. Their downtown building is, is a, a Confederate memorial building. They have a 30-foot statue in the center of town, a monument to the Confederacy. That has to come down. 
if you go to other places like Germany, you will not see Nazi symbols lifted up. It's a crime, actually. Um, but in America, we have romanticized the antebellum South, which was a slaveholding South, and we've literally put up monuments in stone to commemorate it. That sends a constant symbol that we're not beyond those days, and they need to come down. My favorite suggestion, though, is let's make Juneteenth a national holiday. So I didn't know about Juneteenth that I was grown, but Juneteenth is a mashup of the words June and 19th. It commemorates the day when enslaved people in Texas learned of their emancipation, and Juneteenth stands as the oldest celebration of black emancipation in the country. Now, if we make Juneteenth a national holiday, number one, it commemorates one of the most apocal events in U.S. history. Beyond just the racial history, beyond just black history, this is American history. This was America's bloodiest war, most costly war, and it took a war to finally abolish slavery. So just as a nation, we ought to acknowledge that little event in our past, right? But beyond that, it, it would be an annual reminder of where we've been, where we are, and where we still have to go. So Juneteenth would remind us that um, the nation, uh, both Union and Confederate, depended on the enslavement of people of African descent because they produced the cotton in the South. It was used as raw material for factories in the North, exported for money, so the whole country is implicated. Um, and then it would remind us that, 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 that we're still living in the shadow of slavery, in terms of its legacy, right now, and it would instigate an annual discussion about how to move forward. It's just like Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So every time that day comes up in January, we're reminded of Dr. King, his sacrifice, the quotes come out, the pictures come out, and it's actually good, right? Even though it gets a lot of sanitized King and all that stuff, at least we remember him every year. So let's make Juneteenth a national holiday so we remember the enslavement, the emancipation, and the continued struggle for black freedom in America. Uh, so lots of suggestions like that. A lot of what I'm hearing you say, a lot of what you've said throughout this has been knowing our history, knowing the context, knowing why things are the way that they are. Really what you're talking about here is historical activism. Mm. So how do we, as people who aren't doctoral students, who aren't engaging with these sources, what's the starting point for us to be able, besides also picking up the color of compromise, this is, after we've read the color of compromise, where would you say that we should start in learning about history? Information has never been more accessible than the present day. And so there are myriad sources. I would start with the civil rights movement. Because the civil rights movement is something that's near enough in our history that all of us have an awareness of it, but it's also ubiquitous enough that we erroneously think we know what really happened in the civil rights movement. You would be amazed. So uh, the other day on uh, Kindle, a biography of Martin Luther King Jr. called Bearing the Cross by David J. Garrow, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book, it was on sale for $1.99. Start with that book. How many of us have actually read a full-length biography of Martin Luther King Jr.? That was my first, and that was until my 30s. So um, there's a lot we don't know about the people we think we know about. Start with the civil rights movement. The other thing is start local. Look at your own communities, your own college campus or seminary, your own town. Look at the names of the counties where you are. 
you know, there, there's a county near us named Forest County, named for Nathan Bedford Forrest, who massacred uh, black uh, Civil War soldiers. And you would be appalled. There's a whole bunch of Lee counties after Robert E. Lee. There's Jefferson Davis County's president of the Confederacy. And just learning some of that history, in the nation's capital, every state has two monuments in the capital. For Mississippi, there are two about segregationists. One is Jefferson Davis. The other is uh, a, a man who was the Supreme Court justice when the 1890 Constitution was adopted and disenfranchised black people. They're celebrating them. I'm like, why don't we have Megger Evers there? Why don't we have Fannie Lou Hamer there? Why don't we have Hiram Rebels there, right? Um, so just learn even about your local area and, and, and the history there. Start with what interests you is, is essentially the, the input I have. Jamar, we're, we're about out of time, but this topic can be really heavy to wade through. And, and knowing you personally, just through conversations and through brotherhood and friendship, I, I know that you are also a person of, of hope. Hmm. What would be a word of hope that you could offer tonight? Because again, in, in engaging could, if we're not careful for the care of our souls, these are things that sometimes could lead us to despair, mm-hmm. you know, on the other side. So what's a word of hope that, that you could offer us tonight that even as we engage, this is not something that drags us down, but yeah. we're actually empowered to engage and be active. You can't know the promises of God until you experience the persecution that comes with following God. Now, let me unpack that. Uh, I end the book with an exposition of Joshua chapter 1. Joshua has just uh, taken over after Moses died. He's going to lead the Israelites into the promised land. It's a land that's inhabited. He's going to be leading them into battle. And he's naturally, you could expect, very fearful. Three times in that chapter, uh, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous. But He doesn't say to Joshua, be strong and courageous, good luck. He gives him a promise, and that promise is, I will be with you wherever you go. And that promise is carried forward in the New Testament and becomes a person, Jesus Christ. And for Christians, for the American church, as you think about pursuing racial justice, I can guarantee you two things from experience and from Scripture. One, there will be persecution. And two, you experience the promise of God in the person of Christ in a way you've never experienced it before. So you can look <laughs> online now. There was a there was a pretty positive review given, actually. But if you go to the trash bin that is the comments section, you can see what they say not only about the content of this book, but about me as a person. I haven't read them. I just I just heard about them. I learned a long time ago not to read this mess. Um, but I have been through, you know, people rescinding invitations to preach at their churches, rescinding uh, invitations to speak at their conferences, uh, friends, I thought, trying to bring me up on charges with the elders because I had a different political view than they did. You will experience that sort of rejection and pushing away, but at the same time, you will begin to experience God's promise that God is with you. And so that has come through not just this vague spiritual sense. It's come through flesh and blood people like the Witness Collective who in this sojourning of racial justice, you run into people who are on the same journey and who strengthen you. And you get closer to God because you're in the midst of God's struggle 
God's struggle and his God's will for what should be true on earth about the, the equal dignity and equality of all people. And it's not until you actually get engaged in that struggle that you can experience the promises of God. And it's sweet. It's, it's so sweet that people would literally die for the sake of loving God and loving neighbor. And I can attest to that. I can testify. I can witness. <laughs> Amen. Jamar, just want to say this. We are grateful for you and we honor you and your family because we know it's not just you alone. Amen. It was a family effort. Yes. It was a corporate sacrifice within your household. Thank you for being obedient to the Lord's leading and doing this project, which is going to nourish the church and lead us. And one of the things that we want to do, Jamar is going to do a book signing and meeting greet here after. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.